The views expressed on the following program of those of its hosts and participants in no way reflect those of the staff or management of WNRI. Authors Hour. Get the story behind the story. It's all on the Authors Hour. You'll get to hear the authors talking about their books and the journey behind how it all began. Join the opportunity to hear the insights on what inspired them to write it. Now, here is your host, Wayne G. Barber. Good morning, America, and thank you very much for tuning in to the Authors Hour on Smoke at 99.9 FM, WNRI, and since 1954, 1380 AM on the dial, WNRI.com, streamer, tune in, Alexa, you name it. And we also have WayneWNRI at Yahoo.com for any PSAs. Folks, if you or someone you know is celebrating a birthday and you want Wayne to announce it on his program, just send him an email. His address is WayneWNRI at Yahoo.com. Help make that special someone feel like celebrating with a birthday shout-out on WNRI. Thank you, Johnny. Uh, 34 years old today, uh, champion from the Modified Series, Sammy Ramo, uh, Michael Trainer. From Uxbridge, Massachusetts, turns 53. A very, very uh, big wind in the Nemas with uh, Jake. Uh, Dana Robert Rowe. He operates trains. Roger would like that. He actually is an engineer locomotive and one hell of a writer. Uh, Tina Pounds from Bakersfield, California, listens on TuneIn Radio every week. She's a transplant from New England. And our own John Dion celebrates his 83rd birthday today. And uh, give him a call this afternoon on his show from 2 to 4 to uh, give him those accolades. AuthorsHourBookstore.com is expanding now with over 400 books online for your pleasure. If you heard it on the Authors Hour, you can send us an email. We'll make arrangements to get that product right to you. The AuthorsHourBookstore.com. Now, as you know, I'm a proud member of the Association of Rhode Island Authors. And benefits of being an ARIA member include... Networking with dozens of local and published authors at our monthly meetings. And uh, we're going to go live on that very, very shortly now at the church. Our presentations. Oh, and now also, uh, we had it at our board meeting the other night. The meetings will be on Facebook. It'll be on Zoom, which we have plenty of experience now, and live. So there's three ways for the monthly meetings coming up very, very shortly as we expand our technology. Presentations from the industry pros on a wide array of publishing topics. Exclusive invitations to speak and conduct presentations at libraries and other venues. We're going to get into a couple new that were added on this morning. Advance notice of all expos. Ours is the first Saturday of December on the roads on a Patuxent. Hope to have between 120, 130 authors on that. And uh, Miss Eisel, the uh, Olympic swimmer from South County, will be one of our guests and also former Red Sox uh, pitcher the spaceman Bill Lee has got an invitation to be one of our guest authors also uh, opportunities participate in events like NEBA the Situate Art Festival uh, the Woonsocket Autumn Fest and so many more now also we've got uh, a note that came up this morning 
Uh, we got an invitation, and uh, thank you, Debbie Tillinghas, uh, one of our authors from Gloucester, Rhode Island, and she sent in to us. They're having an art stroll chalk. It's a block event on July 15, 2021, on Main Street of East Greenwich. That's where we also have our lively literati right there at the hotel. And any author interested in participating, contact Amy Moore. That's Amy at EastGreenwichChamber.com. And uh, see if you can get it down there. Hopefully get some good weather on July 15th. It seems like all the events now are all opening up at one time, including, oh, what a drum roll. How about ringing some bells? The lively literati gets reunited at the East Greenwich Hotel at 162 Main Street. And we are back Wednesday, June 23rd, starting at 630 the band leaves the equipment there with the mics and the PA systems. It's been remodeled in the off-season during the virus. Uh, East Greenwich is really hopping that time of the year. But being on a Wednesday in the middle of the week, we should have plenty of parking down there. And feel free to bring a sandwich or something. Uh, it's welcome. And there is a, a drinks right there at the Horseshoe Bar. Uh, Wednesday, June 23rd, we're going to feature Rhode Island novelist Alda Kay and Dr. Teresa Zink, followed by a monthly open mic. Now, to get caught up from last year's schedule being canceled and this year's overwhelming uh, application process, we're going to try to do two authors on that once a month on uh, Wednesdays there. And uh, we're going to limit it to 15 to 18 minutes per author and then an open mic at the end. And uh, we just can't wait to get this creativity going again, and the open mic especially. And I want to thank our group, too, including myself on the board of directors. We just had the elections, and we have a brand new design now. We have a logo, absolutely gorgeous, two colors. Uh, The website's being expanded, and the GoFundMe page is now resurrected. We also have one, uh, uh, Debbie Zanelli, I think, put this one in, and it's the Exeter Fall Festival, and that is going to be on Saturday, September 25th, rain or shine, at the Yagu Valley Ski Area. That one is a $20 fee for a 10 by 20 foot space, and you have to register by August 1st to set up to sell your books. And uh, looking forward to, hosted by the Friends of the Exeter public library okay and that's who you do the application with not aria we're going to supply as many authors as we can because we do very very well down there but it's a direct with the friends of exeter public library helen douglas at uh, everett salisbury lane exeter rhode island 02822 okay and that'll be another option to get you out there and sell your wares You talk about a great addition to the community. What a difference going from 1,000 square feet to 1,500 square feet. We're talking about our good friends, Debbie Horan and her parents up there at Book Lovers Gourmet, your local independent bookstore owned and operated by Debbie since 1995. Now they're located down on 72 East Main Street. 
uh, where the pot store is, and there's a florist right on the side of them with plenty, plenty of free parking. And I'll tell you, bath soaps, uh, candles, essential oils, and of course, books, books, and more books. Flavored coffee and teas, Hogan Brothers Coffee, also available by the pound, and all the homemade pastries by local Phyllis Bakery. New arrivals every day, a seasonal stuff. What a business she's got going. And she's very receptive and open to stock your book. Poetry, any type of genre. Give Debbie a call, make an appointment, and she'll see if your books are appropriate for her store. And she'll gladly make a deal with you to stock them there. 508-949-6232. She'd normally open at 10 unless she's brewing that Hogan Brothers coffee right now. 508-949-6232. Book lovers go May. Belo's Flowers was just setting up a new talk about perennials and annuals. Did you experience problems with your garden? We had that real cold front. Then we had the extreme hot weather. Now we had torrential rain. Are you having a few problems with your garden and you want to talk to an expert? You'll get that and so much more with over 65 years of experience at Belu's Flowers and Gift Shop. Three generations to answer all your questions and your planting needs, decoration needs, just because one heck of a gift shop. Just let Jeannie know what's in your budget. She will match up the absolute perfect gift for you. And don't forget, they're a full florist. Flowers last longer from a full florist. I sold flowers and I can make that statement confidently. I really can. Belo's Flowers got the fresh, best stuff in the market. It's 401 766-3165 and uh, Ralph leave and make a delivery for you too. And uh, what a nice addition it is to Winsocket. 65 years, any fundraiser, Jeannie and Ralph, Stan, the whole crew, they come to the forefront and they do their part without being asked. That's the type of people you're doing business with. Local people, local taxpayers at Belo's Flowers and Gift Shop. Right here on Diamond Hill Road, just up from the station, 665. And the phone number is 401-766-3165. Email is waynewnriyahoo.com. Please enjoy this presentation. Okay, I had the pleasure of meeting an author in Webster, Massachusetts at the library, the new library over there a couple of weeks ago. And an author I wasn't aware about, uh, wears about, and being such a historian from the Athol, Massachusetts area, and particular of interest to me, the Corbin Reservoir Basin. I do a lot of fishing up there, and I've done a lot of historical work on the Situate Reservoir right here in Rhode Island. As on the line right now, we have author J.R. Green from Athol, Mass. Is that correct? Yes, and the green has an E on the end. <laughs> green with an E on the end. Yes. Okay. Uh, a writer from the area. It looks like you're a member of a lot of historical districts and uh, societies up there. You could say. 
uh, the Swift River Valley Historical Society, Friends of yep. the Corbin, uh, any other groups? Well, I also am a former director in the uh, Athol Historical Society in my hometown, and <clears throat> I'm also a gubernatorially appointed member of the Metro Water Resources Authority Advisory Board, which I uh, represent the Quabbin watershed and Ware River watersheds of that uh, system. Okay, the first part of the show, I'd like to get into the lowest Quabbin towns, the town of Dana, first settled about 1737, uh, town of Enfield, about that same era, 1737, 1738, uh, Greenwich or Greenwich, uh, also called Greenwich out here. Okay, also called the Narragansett Township Number 4, yes. and a town of Prescott. Now, uh, this you got a comment here now on New Salem, represented in the museums, was incorporated in 1753, another town in this region. Okay, what got your interest up in this historic information on the Corbin uh, area? Did you just move to the town? Was you working in the area? Are you a fisherman? I used to be a fisherman. I haven't been for a number of years. But what I'm a lifelong resident of Athol, which is just north of the Quabbin Reservoir. Uh, <clears throat> Route 2 runs to it east to west, as does uh, a, a part of the old Boston and Maine Railroad. But uh, what got me going was when I was a, a student at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, um, I took a cartography course back in the days when you drew maps by hand. You didn't have computer programs and all that sort of thing to do it. And in, in doing the course, my course project was to come up with um, a series of maps outlining the history of my hometown of Athol, which started out as like a square and ended up as sort of an elongated shaped thing from north to south because of various boundary changes over the years and also the uh, comings of roads and railroads and such. And there was a railroad that connected Athol down southwest towards Springfield, Mass., which came in in the early 1870s, and it traveled through all four of the lost towns. And, of course, being a lifelong resident of the area, I had known about the towns vaguely, like everybody else does, and what happened and how the reservoir destroyed them and such. But uh, So I started following the, the uh, path of the old railroad bed, which went out in the mid-1930s, um, through town and down into New Salem, and uh, you go through one of the many gates that block off roads leading into Quabbin Reservoir to finally where the railroad goes into the water. And then um, I thought, oh, this is interesting, and I looked into the history of the reservoir and found that the three books that had been done about it in 1940, 1946, and 1951, none of them had maps in them. So I took my new, um, <clears throat> my new cartographic skills and drew up an atlas of the Quabbin Valley, past and present. And I published it as a, a sort of a large-sized pamphlet in 1975. And that went through quite a few printings and sold over 10,000 copies before I let it go out of print about a dozen years ago. Um, even fishermen bought it because I had an overlay map in the thing showing where the reservoir was in relation to the old towns. And some of the fishermen tore that map out and would take it out with them to try to find the old deep spots where the ponds were, which I thought was kind of amusing. But uh, that was my first venture into the um, into the Quabbin thing. But that's how I got into it was by following the old railroad bed. 
Now, I noticed at that uh, meeting that we had at the Webster Library, uh, you brought up the fact that the same engineer was used, uh, Mr. Frank Windsor, on both the Wachusett and the Corbin, and also the Situate Rhode Island Reservoir. Is that correct? Yes, well, involving the Wachusett Reservoir, which was Boston's uh, earlier large project around 1900, uh, Windsor was a junior engineer at the time, because he was born in 1870, but he was a graduate of Brown University in Providence. So um, he worked, after the Wachusett project, he worked on some New York City water supply projects, and obviously had become eminent enough for the people who were doing the Providence Project, uh, the Situate Reservoir, to hire him as their chief engineer. And that project was just coming to an end in 1926 when he was hired to become the chief engineer for the uh, future Quabbin Reservoir. So it's kind of interesting. The, the, the fact that he was a brown man, and I understand he hired some brown grad fellow brown graduates to work on this project, but they're also one of the chief advisors and the guy who came up with the main plan for the co-op and his name was X.H. Goodnow was a Harvard graduate and I understand he got some Harvard grads in there too. So there was a little bit of uh, college rivalry, shall we say, going on about this. But So he he finished the Situate project and then jumped right into the, the uh, future Quabbin Reservoir project, Mr. Windsor did. I just find it odd, you know, the three biggest projects in this area in that 10, 20 year period all ends up with the same guy. And I really wonder if politics played a part into it or whether he... Well, I don't think so, because uh, in those days particularly, the, uh, the, the class, the professional class of people like engineers... A lot of people knew other people because they went to the same schools, they belonged to some of the same engineering societies, um, that sort of thing. Uh, and I don't think that the, the politics was very important as far as getting these projects approved by legislatures and governors and all that. But I think the, the idea of the engineers were just, you know, who is the most competent person that you could get to boss the job? And because Windsor had been a junior engineer on the Wachusett project and had worked, you know, in various capacities for different reservoirs for New York City, uh, apparently he had gained enough eminence to get the given the job for the uh, Situate Reservoir, and then obviously that catapulted him up to the level for the much larger Quabbin project. No, so I think it was a question of, of engineering competence, not really politics in this case. One of the three books that I brought from you at the library is The Day Four Corbin Towns Died. And you got it pretty well documented right up until the last town council meetings or selectmen meetings, as you would call them in Massachusetts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But also in that book, right on the back of the cover, it made me aware of all the great works that you have out there. Um, seven collections of poetry. Now, is that nature poetry? No, it was, um, <clears throat> I was a big fan of E.E. E. Cummings and uh, William Carlos Williams, two famous American poets of the <clears throat> early 20th century, and I probably styled myself somewhat after them. It was just general, general poetry, and the last collection I published was in 1982. Uh, but I, I, I sort of went from that into writing the narrative history uh, business once I got interested in the co-op. I've had a total of 21 books and seven collections of poetry and a number of articles published in various types of magazines and things over the years. And you self-published or had a local publisher Most work them, with you? Yeah, I've, I've paid to have them printed by a local printer a couple of them over the years. 
and I've done most of the distribution work and such myself, uh, which has succeeded in selling over 80,000 copies of my works um, over, over time. And um, I've made more money from the ones that have been successful doing that than I would have if I'd been published by somebody else. And the reason I was able to do that is that the market... Uh, geographic market for things about the Quabbin Reservoir is mainly restricted to the eastern part of Western Mass and the western part of Central Mass. Uh, if you go out to Pittsfield Mass and the Berkshires or the Boston area, most people don't know what you're talking about if you mention Quabbin Reservoir or something like that. So, so I, I live within an hour or so of most of the places that, that sell my books for me. So that makes it a lot easier to handle my own distribution. Would your uh, opinion and your knowledge of this particular field, would you consider the Corbin Reservoir one of the largest reservoirs man-made in the United States? When it was built, it was, it was one of the largest uh, water supply reservoirs in the world. It's been exceeded by a number of other places since <coughs> in, in different countries, not just in the United States. But uh, at the time, the, it was built uh, and filled to 38 and a half square miles or 25,000 acres, roughly, if you want to put it that way. And then the watershed land that they purchased around it to protect it was 55,000 acres. So that uh, what not only did it destroy the four towns that you named earlier, but they also took parts of seven others, either for flooding or for watershed protection. So a lot of, uh, they had to basically redraw the map of that area. Uh, several town boundaries and three county sets of county lines had to be altered because of that project. Now, on this uh, subject matter, you start out with the books uh, to supply the Boston fast-growing commercial area. They started making small reservoirs around Boston. You have uh, quoted with names and everything in the book. And then the idea came up of the Wachusett Reservoir, which uh, precedes the Corbin uh, Reservoir by, what, 25 years? Well, the construction, yes, about, about a quarter of a century. Uh, what they tried to do is, is initially Boston and the cities and towns around it tried to have their own water supplies, <clears throat> either by tapping local lakes or ponds or by building small reservoirs. But what happened was by the uh, early 1890s, uh, Boston, of course, annexed a number of adjoining communities into itself, like Charlestown, Dorchester, the Roxburys, and all that. So it, it physically grew, but population-wise, it grew quite a bit, as did many of the suburbs. So as a result, it was viewed that not only would the city of Boston need more water, but many of these surrounding communities. And that's why they decided to go for a quasi-regional state thing called the Metropolitan Water Board. And any town or city within 10 miles of the state house in Boston was allowed to join this district. And that's where they built the Wachusett Reservoir. So it's not only to supply Boston, but the cities and towns around it. And, of course, the district has expanded over the years. The Metropolitan Water Board was absorbed into a Metropolitan District Commission later on, and that was, that was broken up. But the uh, point is that it's a sort of a regional water supply system within the state of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. There are three communities near Springfield that tap water out of it, but most of the rest of the water is, it goes east of the Worcester area, for instance. So they have about 60 communities now that, that get water out of this system. Now, the Wachusett Reservoir, have you had any thoughts about writing a series of books on the Wachusett? I would not have done a series. I, I have accumulated a lot of information about it with the idea that someday I might do a book just on that. 
um, actually a, a teenager at the time when he came out with it, came out with a brief history book on it, um, I think about 10 years ago, and uh, I don't think he's ever done anything else on the subject, but uh, and it's not a very easy book to get, because I think it was a small, small published affair, but um, not, a, not a very bad book either, I thought it was pretty well done, but... Um, the, the thing with that area is, unlike the Quabbin with the Wachusett Reservoir, they did not destroy any whole towns. They took substantial parts of four communities, and the centers of two of them, Boylston and West Boylston, they sort of picked up and moved on to the high ground overlooking those reservoirs, uh, that reservoir. And they also did not buy anywhere near as much territory around the reservoir as they did for the Quabbin. So uh, all those towns still exist. Clinton, Sterling... Boylston and West Boylston. Just that now they have a lot of nice water views in some of them, but um, whereas again with the Quabbin, they not only destroyed four towns totally, but they took parts of several others. Now also uh, a part of this big uh, project, Wachusett and the Quabbin and the Sedgwick, was the uh, removal and transporting of the uh, historical cemeteries. Yeah, that's correct. Um, of course, you can't have a you know a submarine or something to go down and look at a grave under a reservoir. And these are drinking water reservoirs, so you don't want people having physical contact with the water. So uh, that's that's an important point. With the, the Wachusett Reservoir, they actually had some legal problems with with one cemetery there, but uh, other than that, they didn't they didn't have to do too too much of anything difficult. Uh, the Quabbin they created a brand new cemetery for relocating the various graves from the uh, pre-existing towns. And people were also, if someone moved to another town, like my hometown of Athol, they could have the grave transferred to, to that town if they wanted, and a number of people did do that. But there are several thousand graves at the so-called Quabbin Park Cemetery in Ware, Massachusetts, near the Quabbin, for that purpose. The Wachusett, they did not do a general cemetery like that. They just transferred the cemeteries out into new locations and... and put the graves there, and, and they're still burying people in those places. Uh, I don't know what they did with the situate in that instance, but, uh, you know, the fact that you have a drinking water supply that's not considered aesthetically pleasing to have graves in it, and also because people want to visit the ancestors' graves, so that's why you move them. Okay, if you're just tuning in right now, you're listening to the Author's Hour on WNRI.com worldwide and also Smoker 99.9 FM, 95.1 FM, and 1380 AM on the dial. And today we are interviewing J.R. Green from Athol, Massachusetts, uh, an author of poetry and 21 different books. And his main theme is the Athol area on the Corbin Reservoir. He's also an accomplished author on President Calvin Coolidge and also now into a new series of Corbin's Railroad, The Rabbit, which I bought a purchase, a copy of, volume number one. I got to get number volume two to you. And yeah, I uh, do have that. Yep. very, very stimulating conversation here. He does PowerPoint presentations uh, by request in reservations around the area. Like I say, I hooked up with him at the Webster Library and a very good presentation. And uh, we had between 28 and 32 people there that night. And he did an excellent Q&A after the meeting, which we really, really appreciated. Uh, I ran into... Uh, one of my four, uh, fellow board members from the Association of Rhode Island Authors uh, yesterday, uh, Mr. Ray Wolf, 
uh, accomplished, 26 books, and he wrote a series of books on underneath the Situate Reservoir of the towns that were flooded out. And I asked Ray, I says, if you were interviewing J.R. Green, what would be your number one question? And he thought about it. I could see the wheels turning. And then he says to me, he says, ask him about how they handled compensation. Well, that's a good question because uh, it's interesting. When they did the Wachusett Reservoir, they actually had set aside funds and did pay out several tens of thousands of dollars to people, you know, all told, to people who had... uh, lost their jobs in the mills in that affected area and didn't necessarily get another job right away. In other words, for the they compensated them for the time between jobs. <clears throat> now, they didn't do that with the Quabbin Reservoir, which I find interesting, even though that was done at a later date. But the main question, of course, is with property compensation. Now, the, the thing with, with the Quabbin Project is it began in 1926, and the flooding didn't begin until 80 years ago, 1939. Uh, so there was a long period and they were purchasing property. And the people who sold out in the late 1920s or the late 1930s tended to get better payments because, of course, the Great Depression came in starting in, you know, after 1929, the crash of 29. And that, that was very, that lowered the property values for several years into the early 30s. So that some people who sold out at that point in the early 30s didn't get really much for their property. Uh, also, if people got a lawyer, they tended to get more for it, although the cost of the lawyer may have made up most of the difference of whatever extra money they got. However, the the main point was that uh, they were not compensated for, for housing relocation assistance or anything like that. You sold your house, you took the property out and paid to move it yourself, or you auctioned it off and just left with whatever you wanted to keep and found someplace else to live. There was no bureau to help you to relocate or anything like that. So it was a rather cruel process in that sense. And also, a number of people who had small businesses or something, often all they got paid for was the value of the land and the buildings or whatever. They didn't get paid for the loss of trade, so to speak. So that was another area where the uh, the, the water commission that built the club and was not very generous in that regard. And I know some of the small business people did get lawyers and did get better settlements, but... A lot of people didn't do very well in that course. And that's one of the many reasons why the people who came out of there, who there are not very many living left, and their descendants are still rather resentful about the whole thing. Because it was, it was handled in a, in a rather, you know, unkind un, uh, way as far as dealing with the, re- the residents having to leave. Well, the government had that problem, too, with the Depression and also the uh, stock market crash of 29, which would have changed all the plans overnight on that. Uh, you made a comment in your book that I, I touched on a little bit. The railroads were the last to come in, and uh, a lot of them were the big magnet money people that own these railroads in that famous golf course up in that area. And it seems like uh, they got all the money they were looking for. Well, the railroads are a separate issue, but the fact that, uh, you know, they they did pay for the taking of the railroad, the, the northern two-thirds of it between Athol and Palmer, uh, in, in order for that. Um, but the, the curious thing is the two industrialists from Springfield who created a golf course in Greenwich in 1926, which obviously knew the project was coming, and from what I understand, they spent about $60,000 to buy the land and build a small stone clubhouse and lay out a rather sandy nine-hole golf course. 
but what they did was they tried to put out paper subdivisions and things on the property to make it seem like it was worth more. But because they were wealthy and had good lawyers, after three court cases, they ended up getting a settlement of $186,000. Unfortunately for them, one of the principals died a few weeks after the settlement came in, so he didn't get to enjoy it. But uh, obviously wealthy people... Uh, you know, with good good legal counsel, could could uh, get themselves a pretty good settlement. But uh, the average person in the valley couldn't afford to do that, and therefore they kind of had to take what they got. Now, one of the questions we had at the library from an engineer, I believe he was in the audience, uh, he wanted to know on the setup how the two reservoirs are connected. As we know, the Corbin Reservoir is more to the north, above it. West, to and, the west, yes. Uh, to the west, and then drains down naturally into the Wachusett. Are they using the same uh, underground piping conduits, or are they two yes, separate yes. units? Yes, they built aqueducts. Uh, they had one aqueduct originally between Wachusett Reservoir and the area into Boston, uh, west of Boston, and then they've added another... Um, tunnel called the Metro West Tunnel just in the last few years, so they have what they call redundancy. So if one tunnel has a problem, they can switch to the other one or, or whatever. They'll still have a supply. In the case of the Quabbin Reservoir, they built one aqueduct, which is about 12 feet in diameter, underground between the Quabbin and uh, an inlet into the Wachusett Reservoir. So it's about 25 miles. Um, and because it was uh, kind of a concrete structure thing, it's pretty solid. And being underground, it's it's usually uh, not penetrated by any types of, uh, you know, ground stuff or pollution or anything. So that one they're still using. And they also have a connection to the Ware River Diversion in Barrie, Mass., uh, which they can take water out of that. They don't run it directly east to Wachusett Reservoir. They run it west into the Quabbin. Uh, and it goes all the way around a very long peninsula to get into the intake to go back to Boston. So that the water in the Ware River is a little less pure than the, than the water in the Quabbin. So that's the way they clean it out by mixing it with the Quabbin water before they, they run it back east. But it's an ingenious system, and it is a gravity-fed system between Quabbin and, and Ware River and Wachusett, and also uh, down toward, uh, heading toward Boston. Because at the high water mark, the Quabbin Reservoir is around 530 feet above sea level. So it's, uh, it's pretty much of a gravity-fed system. Okay, now I'm just thinking back the last few years, me traveling up on uh, Southeast Expressway in 93 with the construction. Was <laughs> any of that construction on 93 part of this update on the water system? No. No, the big dig, so-called, was, was just strictly a highway and, and tunneling types of project. Uh, they have the, the Metropolitan Water Resources Authority uh, is the agency that handles the water and the sewer business for the metro boston area and they've had all kinds of projects the most famous one was the harbor cleanup so-called the boston harbor cleanup uh starting in the 90s they spent quite a few years building a very elaborate um sewage treatment system on deer island which is connected to uh, winthrop northeast of boston and uh that's that's been functioning very well of course now they, they have to maintain that through the years and they have what they call an outfall tunnel to, to get the treated water out into, uh, way out into the Boston Harbor. And then they, they pull the sludge and the chemicals out. And some of the sludge, they're able to treat it and use it for uh, a form of fertilizer, which they market, which is an interesting form of recycling. Uh, but they do have separate water projects and, and sewer projects and things that they're are always ongoing uh, with the authority so that they're, uh, they're able to do this because they have the ability to, to bond their projects. 
And, of course, their main revenue is from the rate payers of the various cities and towns that use their services for water and sewerage. Okay, another thought that I have, um, maybe you haven't dug into it yet. I keep thinking about the terrorism attack uh, with uh, chemical warfare and stuff like this that's so uh, predominant around the world now. Do you know of any steps that these two water districts or one water district is taking to combat that? Uh, any yes, type well, of right after 9-11, they actually had a National Guard unit stationed um, at the dam, the main dam at the Quabbin Reservoir where the administration building is and all that uh, and that was there for a number of weeks um, they don't allow people to fly drones over the reservoir or the land right around it uh, they also you know monitor uh, Westover Air Force Base is southwest of the Quab in, in Chicopee Massachusetts that's a, a suburb of Springfield uh, and they they have various flights and things but they they monitor uh, you know people with private flights you're not supposed to fly too close to the reservoir uh, what's interesting about that is then they have fenced off the um, the intakes to the various, the two aqueducts that lead out of Quab, and one leads out of the uh, Windsor Dam down toward that area I mentioned, Chicopee, and a couple other towns earlier. And then the other one is the main intake where the water heads east toward Watusa Reservoir. So they fence those areas off from quite a distance away to try to keep people from wandering in there who may have nefarious intent. But, of course, they do allow fishing boats and shore fishing during a season, which I believe just ended this last weekend. It's April to October. Um, and the thing is, with the fishing boats, you have to have a mass fishing license and all that sort of stuff. But uh, what is interesting, because of the fact that the Quabbin Reservoir, a lot, not all, but a lot of the watershed is hikeable, and parts of it can be bicycled over, uh, the idea is that the people who are using the area for those recreational purposes, and those are about the only ones allowed, uh, no swimming, no camping, none of that stuff. Um, are probably as good of a, well, now that we have cell phones, or as good of people, if somebody who saw somebody walking in with a, a gigantic backpack and, and stuff that looked like it was loaded down with explosives or something, they'd probably report it to the state police barracks, which is at the administration building, and they'd come out there and catch them. But, um, so they do have, they have taken measures, and I know the Wachusett Reservoir, they've also got some restrictions and things there, too. Uh, so obviously it's very important that uh, these these reservoirs are protected because the, the Windsor Dam and the Goodnodike Quabbin are both basically earth dams. They're not built out of concrete or granite blocks like the Wachusett Reservoir Dam is. They're basically just an earth thing. So that theoretically, if you could get an explosive uh, vehicle, let's say, out onto the center of the dam, which you cannot drive over with a public vehicle, uh, and you could shield the walls and the roof pretty heavily, if the, if the bottom of it was, was not very well shielded, if you could blow a hole down to the water line, the, the thing would just drain right out. Well, so that's their main concern is, uh, you know, that's why you don't want somebody with a, a plane with some kind of a large bomb flying over the dam or the dike and blasting it because that would do a number on the reservoir, not to mention the damage it would do to various people that live downstream on the Swift River or, or whatever. So uh, so this is a concern, and they have taken steps, and they've had various training things, I understand, to uh, deal with, you know, types of incidents that might occur. There's a, a highway bridge, uh, a viaduct that goes over the middle of Wachusett Reservoir, and there's walls on either side of it, so it would be pretty hard to crash a truck full of something bad into it, but it's certainly not impossible. So that's, uh, you know, the kind of thing that they have to be concerned about. 
Now, another uh, part of your portfolio of your 21 books is another one that I bought from you, and I can't put it down because I really enjoy the uh, I'm a Naturalist. Another show I have is The Outdoor Scene, and I was fortunate enough to buy historic Corbin hikes, yeah. and uh, a lot of that information that you were just talking about are clearly laid out in that book for residential people to really enjoy the area in a safe way. I've got a question for you. I'm doing research in the Thompson area of the 1894 East Thompson train wreck, uh, four trains in that monster wreck. Uh, the trains that you talk about in the Corbin's uh, Railroad, the Rabbit, Volume 1 and Volume 2, does it touch into the area where possibility the trains that you were writing about may have been one of those four trains up in 1894? I kind of doubt it because I, you're talking about the Thompson, Connecticut train wreck, right? Well, yes, correct. Yeah, that would have been a New Haven Railroad uh, thing, whereas the railroad that ran through the, the old Corbin Valley was a branch of the Boston and Albany, later New York Central. So there were two different systems, so okay. I rather doubt that you had uh, you had any anything, you know, any direct connection between the two of them, even though the Thompson, Connecticut area is very close to the, um, you know, Massachusetts border. They're, they're two different systems. Okay. So I don't think you would have any, any relation uh, on that. So. Now, also on that series of books you have on those old railroads, are any of those engines uh, been restored and on display anywhere in museums that you I know of? I don't know. I mean, there's a New York Central Historical Society out of New York, although they don't they don't touch very much on the Boston and Albany end of it because it's only the, the western end of it was in New York State. But uh, so I don't know if any of the locomotives, the old steam locomotives from that period, I know there are some that exist in different places in the country. I don't know if there are any of the ones that specifically ran in that area that still exist. And as a matter of fact, there's a small stub of the old branch that still exists in the eastern part of Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, the first few miles of it are still in operation as a what they call an industrial track. In other words, they serve certain industries that ship goods out or bring in raw materials. Uh, and that's located right along uh, Interstate 291 there in Springfield. But all the rest of the line, the other 40 or whatever miles of it are long gone. Some of them are railroad beds. Some of them just been built over or whatever. Okay, in the last part of our interview is going to be on the quietest, unpopular, well, on just a very quiet, subtle president that we've had in our country, uh, Calvin Coolidge, who has got your interest up on three or four books that you've got out there on him. And why Calvin? Did he come from the Athol area? No. He was a native of Plymouth, Vermont, which is... Uh not far from places like uh, Woodstock and, and Ludlow and, and those sorts of parts, the central part of the state. Uh, but he ended up going to Amherst College. He was born in 1872. The only president born on the 4th of July, by the way. Uh, and he went to Amherst College at Amherst, Mass. And then when he graduated from that, he went to Northampton, which is what you would call the Shire Town or the county seat of that county and he read law which you could do in those days before they required you to go to law school you could uh, apprentice in a lawyer's office for a year or two or three and then eventually you would take the bar exam uh, in front of two or three established uh, attorneys or judges and they would certify you to become a lawyer and that's what he did and so he became a lawyer in Northampton and he ended up uh, marrying and having two children there and he slowly worked his way up the ladder 
in Massachusetts politics, from being a city councilor to a state representative to mayor of Northampton to a state senator. He was president of the state senate and then lieutenant governor, governor, and then he was nominated for vice president in 1920 on the ticket with Warren Harding when they won. And then when Harding died in office in August of 1923, he became president. Uh, the Probably the closest uh, presidential resident to where I live, although obviously we had several in the Boston area, there are John Kennedy, the Adamses and such, but... Um, I don't. Uh, he was governor when the Quabbin project was proposed, and he was president when it began, but he didn't have anything to do with it in that sense because it was a state project. It was not a, a federal project. Uh, so it's just a coincidence. But uh, a lot of people find presidents interesting, but, you know, they always say, well, why don't you go for famous or good ones like Reagan or Kennedy or Roosevelt? Or, and uh, I got interested in this guy. <laughs> it, it's an interesting subject matter because I started researching it myself. And uh, in our business, the radio business, uh, Harding, just before he died, was actually the first president on radio. And then right. Calvin Coolidge was the first one that manipulated and used that tool yes. of media. Fact, there's a small book a man named Jerry Wallace did called Calvin Coolidge, our first radio president. And he talks about, he had a voice, a very New England twangy voice. And a lot of people said he sounded like a duck quacking. <laughs> but for some reason, his voice came out fairly well on radio. And, and people seemed to respond to uh, his radio addresses very favorably. So he also held uh, more press conferences than any president uh, up, to, up to his time. And up until, I guess, Franklin Roosevelt. So, um, and also... Part of his reputation as Silent Cal... Uh, when the occasion merited it, he was quite willing and capable of speaking. Uh, there are three different collections of his speeches that were published in book form, uh, besides many others that, uh, that were not done that way. So uh, the man could talk when he wanted to. And also he has a distinction of the day he took over the office to the day he got out. He actually reduced the federal budget by 25%. Well, this started under his predecessor, Warren Harding, and of course, World War One, which this country was involved in 1917 and 18, between the expenses of the war and uh, funding various allies and, and their needs and such, we ran up a huge deficit. And then uh, when Warren Harding came in, of course, the budget was going to drop naturally after the war anyway, but uh, they did uh, cut taxes, but they, they also cut the budget heavily. Uh, unlike the current situation where they didn't do anything to the deficit, then they cut taxes. They did it right back in the 20s. They cut the budget down to where it had a good surplus, and they cut taxes, and the tax revenues actually were increased. Uh, and working people back then didn't have to pay income taxes. You had to earn over $3,000 a year in the 1920s to pay income tax, and obviously that's not something that the average worker got. So uh, the thing is, is the national debt under Harding and Coolidge was cut by one-third. And then, of course, when Herbert Hoover came in, uh, then the Great Depression hit, and the idea was to try to use federal spending to pump prime the economy. And therefore, the deficit hawk mentality of Harding and Coolidge went out the window with Hoover and Roosevelt, so Franklin Roosevelt. So, and here we now have a, a much huge you know, national debt of 22 or something trillion. Uh, but, no, that's something that uh, Coolidge was very much of a, what they call a deficit hawk. Uh, he always said he was for economy. An interesting sidelight is many people now alive do not realize that the currency we use, our dollar bills, are the size they are because of Coolidge. Um, the bills were much larger in those days, about 40% larger than they are now. 
people call them horse blankets. And Coolidge thought if they would reduce the size of the paper, they would not only save on paper, but they would save on ink. So starting in 1928, that's when the current size of the currency came into vogue. Brilliant idea. We're uh, talking with J.R. Green, an author from Apple Mass. Uh, can you let our listening audience know your calendar for the remaining part of the year and how they can purchase any one of your 21 books out there? What's the best way for you to make a sale? Well, the ones, the ones that are in print, I have them listed on eBay. So you can look at a picture of the cover and read the descriptions of them and all that. Um, they are available in some outlets, but unfortunately, uh, I don't have any outlets uh, southeast of Rutland, Massachusetts. Um, and they are available at the Visitor Center, however, which is located at the administration building at the Windsor Dam there in Belchertown, Massachusetts. That's off uh, Massachusetts Route 9. So that's another place you can get them. And I do uh, take orders by email from people if they, uh, if they want to try to do that, get in touch with me that way. Okay, uh, your email address? My email address is very simple. It's my initials and my zip code, and then we'll go from there. So it's JRG, and then the numbers 01331, and then the at sign, the circle, and the A. WebTV, that's W E B T V, dot net. Okay. JRG 01331 at WebTV.net. So if people would like to communicate with me about that, they can. I will be finishing off my collection because I'd like to have or dig up even the ones that are out of print. I'd like to get your entire collection on it because uh, I think they're priceless. Well, a number of people have done it. And I've done 35 annual history calendars related to the Quabbin Reservoir, oh which uh, other than the front cover, each inside, they all have different pictures of the uh, of different places and scenes in the old valley over the years. So uh, that's another thing. I, I, I never thought it would go and be gone one year, and here I have done 35 of the darn things. <laughs> Okay, that's going to conclude today's interview with J.R. Green, an accomplished author, a historian from the Athol, Massachusetts area. And I want to thank you very much for taking the time to come on the Author's Hour. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, I had the pleasure of meeting an author at Webster, Massachusetts, at the library, the new library over there. Harvest Moon Health Foods, Route 21, Unit 4, Colonial Plaza in Putnam, Connecticut. 860-928-2352. Healthy foods for a healthy lifestyle. Gluten-free products. Over 100 dried herbs, nuts, and seeds. Healthy snacks. Help your body to reinforce its immune response. Hemopathic and herbal allergy relief. We stock quality brand manufacturers, including Against the Grain, Rudy's, Nature's Plus, Batlean's Organic Oils, Food for Life, and so much more. Natural honey and organic coconut sugar, raw milk. Elderberry for flu remedies. Consumer-friendly hours are Monday through Wednesday, 10 to 6 p.m., Thursday to Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Sundays, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Harvest Moon Health Foods, .net, Unit 4, Colonial Plaza, Putnam, Connecticut. 860-928-2352. Proud sponsor of Ryan Tag and the number 9 in the late model at Thompson Speedway. We'll also have a uh, bevy of authors down at the Exeter Fall Festival we mentioned earlier, and also the Boroughville Art Festival coming up September 18th, and also the Loof Festival, and that will be on August 14th. Northeast Race Cars and Speed, 
Uh, ship daily by 11 o'clock, located at Six Hill Road in Harrisville, 401 710 Race Composites and Supplier and Custom Fabrication. They actually poured the cement for a new chassis shop, uh, new uh, employees, and new taxpayers. Right there by Shane and Raylene Hopkins. Uh, race Composites and Service from a career long racer, and also Hopkins Brothers Auto Repair. The same premises ever in Harrisville, Rhode Island. Call Herbie for that best break job in Northern Rhode Island at 401-710-9992. Or if you're coming from up north or calling in from uh, New Smyrna, Florida, 1-800-766-4748. And they'll ship those pots out for you by 11 o'clock every day. Two 53-foot trailers, uh, Stafford on Friday, Waterford, New London on Saturday, and Manadnack Speedway in Keene, New Hampshire on Saturday also. Northeast Race Cars and Speed, 401-710-9992. Help wanted, help wanted. Apply in person, no phone calls, unless you're calling in an order. Cereals Pizza Rima and Restaurant, with a beach blanket pizza special every Tuesday. 15 slices of large cheese pizza, only $7. What a deal. It's uh, Jeff Gamage in the top five of all New England. That's how highly it's rated. Over 52 years in business. Uh, hockey game tonight, basketball game. You're looking for a nice delivery, maybe you're right at the pool. Call 401-568-7187. He's looking for one more experienced server with extended hours now. Saturday and Sunday, breakfast starts at 7 now instead of 8. And they're looking for one more experienced server. Sunday dinner for two for $19.99. Includes soda and coffee, including decaf, and then a homemade dessert. Choice of six to ten entrees, whether it be chicken, uh, fish, beef, or poultry. Or Italian. Johnny Orlando's uh, Italian sauce is up there, too. Stapled right to the wall. It'll stay there forever. At Cereal's Pizza Rama and Restaurant. 401-568-7187. I'll be heading over to Thompson Speedway Wednesday night. Uh, they have uh, one per month on a Wednesday night with a big, big modified rights and uh, also put on by the act and the pastor. Wednesday, only racing in town in New England. Wednesday night this week at Thompson Speedway. And you'll see the people from Barrowville Motor Sales and Larry's 24-Hour Towing. You know what's going to happen. People lock those keys in a key fob in a car. Who are they going to call? They're going to call Larry's 24-Hour Towing. You can also call the same following phone number to schedule a Rhode Island vehicle state inspection. 401-568-6286. Also, used auto and truck sales. From a soccer mom van to a four-wheel drive to a uh, nice late model car that gets good mileage. Vehicle state inspections. Peter, Jerry, John, Brian, the rest of the ASD certified staff will keep your car on the road or sell you a new one. Also, expert body work and insurance estimates right on the premises. They don't farm out anything, and they work with every Rhode Island insurance company. Barrowville Motor Sales and Larry's 24-Hour Towing, 401-568-6286. Thank you very much for tuning in. Our podcast is anchor.fm, Wayne slash Bobber. 
You'll find race chatter episodes on that, author's hour, outdoor scenes, and all great programming. Thank you very much for tuning in today to the author's hour. And we'll catch you Wednesday night over at Thompson Speedway. Remember tomorrow, have that best.